Greetings and welcome to an exposition of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and it's called Kiss the Sun. I want to uh, welcome you and thank you for coming to join me today as we explore Psalm number 2. And we have a, an awesome opportunity in Psalm number 2 to learn some wonderful things uh, about the Lord Jesus Christ. And what today is, is a day is, call, is a callback to the simplicity of the gospel. And we uh, think, okay, what is the gospel? How do we preach the gospel? What are the important aspects of the gospel? And we generally turn to the New Testament, as we should, to find the elements there. What are the things? We maybe look to the book of Acts and see how the apostles were preaching it. We maybe go to the book of Romans, which itself is a, a claim to be an exhaustive treatment. Not exhaustive, but a long treatment of the gospel itself. Or we go to the Gospels themselves, the Lord Jesus Christ. What were his teachings? What were the uh, the implications of his ministry, his death, and his resurrection? And all these places are good, but we have to remember that we need to go sometimes to the very same raw material that the apostles had, the very same things that they went to when they preached the gospel. They had scriptures, and they had the scriptures we know as the Old Testament. They were in the process of creating and writing, and the Holy Spirit was carrying them along to write letters to one another, to write the gospel accounts of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, and all these things in the first century. But nevertheless, what they were going out and using and preaching as their raw material was the Old Testament. And one of the places they went is Psalm 2. So Psalm 2, we're going to find out, is very powerful, very interesting psalm. The gospel is very simply this, and we're going to see this outlined in Psalm 2, that the world is in rebellion against God, that Jesus has been appointed the king over all mankind by God himself, and salvation, therefore, is to be found in allegiance to him alone. And so as we look for the simplicity of the gospel, as we look for what are our roots, how can we boil it down, we find it here, and we find encouragement and hope, because that indeed is what we need to share. So in Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is what's known as a royal psalm, that is a psalm concerning the king, and not just any king, but the king of Israel. And the king of Israel was considered by the nation Israel, as stated by God himself, that he was the anointed one, the chosen one of God to not only lead Israel, but to lead his efforts to redeem the world itself, to conquer the world uh, through this great king. So the original occasion for Psalm 2, we're not certain of. Was it the crowning of David when David first became king? Was it when David conquered Jerusalem, uh, this important city, and decided that this was going to be the place where they would put the Ark of the Covenant, where they would build a temple for the Lord? We're not exactly sure. Um, but we do know this, that David was considered the greatest of all the kings that they had because of the moniker that God had put on him that he was a man after his own heart. And this Israelite King David, he was the one anointed to conquer the surrounding nations, and many of them he did. And many of the surrounding nations were put in subjection under David and also under Solomon. And so the king of Israel is this way God's anointed conqueror. 
But as more revelation was given to the people of Israel, that is, as the Bible went on, there would be another according to the promise of David who would come and subdue all the nations and rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem. Solomon, his son, came and went. Rehoboam, his grandson, came and went. And so did many others in the line of David, never quite fulfilling all that the prophets had said, but the prophets kept speaking. And so it became obvious that there would be one who would come later that would fulfill all of these things. So Psalm 2 represents this future hope for the people of Israel. Now, once Jesus came, the early church recognized immediately, as early as the book of Acts, as we see it quoted in Acts chapter 4, they saw this Psalm 2 as speaking of Jesus Christ. And so Psalm 2 has two fulfillments, at least two fulfillments. First of all, a near fulfillment and celebration of the earthly king David. But secondly, and ultimately, the fulfillment of the role of the anointed king to subdue and lead Israel and the nations in Jesus Christ. And so this is the powerful message that we see in Psalm 2. Now, as we read Psalm 2, here's what I want you to do. Look for the outline. It states the problem, which is the rebellion of mankind, the solution, which is Jesus Christ, and the invitation to obey and follow him. So let's take a look at Psalm 2. We'll go to the scriptures here, and we'll sort this out. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for your King David. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in whom and by whom we may be saved if we will but trust in him for the salvation. Lord, this is a beautiful thing that you have done, that indeed you are subduing the nations with your gospel, and you indeed are conquering by the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return to ultimately and finally conquer all in your great name so that we can have peace, so that we can have joy, so that we can have fellowship with you. And Lord, we thank you for these wonderful things. And I pray, Lord, this day, as we look at this psalm, that we understand these things more and we're better equipped to go and minister the gospel to many people. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to point out something very important here. This appears to be a conversation 
the psalmist begins the conversation by asking a question. Why do the nations rage and people's plot in vain, etc.? And then it actually quotes what the people of the earth are saying here. Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. Then the attention turns to the Father, Yahweh in heaven. Uh, and he sits on the throne and he laughs. Then he will speak in his wrath. And what does he say? He says this in verse 6, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So this is the Father speaking. But then notice a change in person when it gets to verse 7. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. So in verse 6, you have the Lord speaking. And then in verse 7, you have someone to whom the Lord has spoken. So the Lord said to me, you are my son today, I've begotten you. In the New Testament, this is attributed to Jesus Christ. So here we have the father speaking in verse 6. Then we have the son speaking in verse 7. And the son continues to speak in verses 8 and 9. But notice, he is quoting the father. This is how Jesus rolled. Remember, he said, I've come to do my father's will. It is my food to do the will of him who sent me that the Lord Jesus was doing precisely what his father asked him to do, and he's even quoting his father's commands. And he says, he tell of the decree, you are my son today, begotten you, and the father continues, and he says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession, etc. Then uh, he finishes up in verse 9, and then in verse 10, the uh, person changes again, the, the viewpoint changes again, to a neutral viewpoint. But I see this as the Spirit because we know that the prophets of old wrote by being carried along by the Holy Spirit, according to Peter in one of his letters. And so here it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. And I see this as the invitation of the Holy Spirit. And so you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having kind of an exchange here to bring forth this, this incredible psalm right here near the beginning of the psalms. So, back to the top here, the problem is this, that the nations rage. And starting this with a question uh, is what the psalmist is doing. Why? Why do they, you know, people plot in vain? In other words, it's useless. He begins and he has the answer in his question uh, by saying they plot a vain thing. They plot, some, plot something meaningless, something that can't possibly come to pass. And this is perhaps about David conquering Jerusalem. As we mentioned before, the Jebusites were in rebellion against the king uh, because they were not submitting to Israel. They were in the promised land that had been given by God. Remember, it's all his, so he has the right to give it to Israel. And they were rebelling against Israel's rule. And so David had to conquer them to take the city of Jerusalem. And look at Acts uh, chapter 4, we find this part of Psalm 2 quoted here. What had happened was Peter and John got put in prison for the first time. It's going to happen again and again uh, for healing a man and preaching. And so they get thrown in prison by the same people who crucified Jesus. They're warned. They're told not to uh, preach, but they say, well, we, we're going to keep preaching is basically a paraphrase of what they said. When they get back together with the rest of the brothers and sisters, look what they say. Um, and I want to start back here with verse 24. When they heard it, that is, when they heard what, what was said, uh, 
they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, so they attribute the psalm to David, said by the Holy Spirit and by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage, that's the nations, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they take these verses and apply them to their present situation. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Did you notice that? The Herod, which represents the Jewish leadership, Pontius Pilate representing the Roman or Gentile leadership, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So, so they're all given uh, credit, if you were, for the rebellion. And this spreads this rebellion out, saying basically this is all the world. It's not just the leaders. It's not just Herod. It's not just Pontius Pilate. It's all the people. Remember the crowds shouted to crucify him. And so it's all the people of Israel, all the Gentiles, that they apply this psalm to raging against the Lord. This is then a reminder of the audience of this passage in Psalm 2. How should we be taking this as applying? This is not something merely for the people of Israel or merely for the church uh, in the present age. It is something that is intended to have a message for all of mankind because they are all in rebellion. Now, this reminds us of their disposition. They are not against God just because they're ignorant of God. They are not just against God because they, they haven't heard the message or they haven't had enough evidence to be convinced yet. They are active in their rebellion against God. And this is evident from the world today. As we see the world, as we look around, they're continually rejecting all the things of God. First and foremost, his authority as God and his position as their creator, his right to dictate, therefore, how we ought to live and what we ought to worship. And people are rebelling to the point now where they're even rebelling against his right to assign their place in life, including their own gender. The world's problem is not ignorance, it is defiance. This is what we see in Romans chapter 1, when Paul introduces what he calls his gospel, and he's eager to preach the gospel to the people at Rome. As he opens up his letter, he speaks of that, and then he goes on to say what the gospel is, and the following chapters all contain that. He opens it this way, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So here's the, the shocking thing about these verses in, in Romans is Paul is saying that creation itself shows us the truth about God. Not all of it, but enough. Enough that we should know that he not only is, but some aspects of his divine nature are revealed there. We should be seeing these things, but we don't. 
Why? Just because we're, we don't have eyes to see them? Well, no, we have eyes, we have ears, we have sense, we have a spirit, and we have a soul, we have intelligence, we have all that we need. The problem is we don't want to. Look what it says at the end of verse 18 here. It says um, that the truth has been revealed who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This is an actual active verb. In other words, these people are holding it back, holding it down as it were, keeping the truth at arm's length because they don't want to know. And this is an important fact to understand. This is how Jesus taught it. If we go to uh, John chapter 3, we all love John 3.16. If we back up to there, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Then we go on to verse 19. I want to show you that. This is the judgment that Jesus says. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So because they were against God, because they wanted to sin, they didn't like the light, which is referring, of course, to Jesus Christ. It's come into the darkness, but people just love the darkness rather than the light. Mankind's problem is not ignorance. It is rebellion. Many of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we remember our defiance. We remember embracing every alternative to the truth so we would have some excuse to continue to live our lives the way our desires led us to, the way our sin led us to live life. We wanted to live on our own terms, so we sought out those things that would allow us or give us permission to do so, and we suppressed and held back and refused to look at those things that would suggest we could not live the way we wanted to live. Now, some of us in the Christian world are at a disadvantage because we've been raised into faith since a very young age. And many have come to faith at such a young age as to forget what it was like in their rebellion, to forget that we were saved, not just from ignorance, but from a rebellious nature. And so this poses a great danger for us as Christians if we forget as we talk to non-believers, as we preach the gospel to people, and we forget that their problem is, like our problem, rebellion. And if we diagnose, misdiagnose the problem, then we will give the, the wrong solution. We will give the wrong cure. And we'll be inviting people, instead of to repent of their rebellion against God and their sin, we'll be suggesting, why don't you come on over to church and you'll have a better life there. And you can be a better person and you can have the blessings of the gospel. Now, it is true that when you become a believer, there are many things in your life that are going to improve. Many things will become a burden, but it's all worth it. But there are many blessings to being a believer. It will make us better people. It will make us get along better. It will keep us from many of the difficulties caused by our sins as God refines our character into a more obedient one. But that has to come. All those things have to come after first treating the real problem, our rebellion to God, when we must surrender from our rebellion or perish from the wrath of God. 
If we remember our conversion, we will remember that it was conviction of our sins that led us to faith in Jesus Christ. A revelation of the wrath of God being upon us for that sin. Not just a desire for a better life. Not just a happier way for us to get through life. Something to do on Sundays. Community to enjoy. But no actual salvation from the wrath of God. Because remember, it's the wrath of God that came upon Jesus Christ on the cross. The wrath that was due to us, he took upon himself. So remember this great truth that the entire world is in rebellion. And this will also correct how we preach the gospel. So this very first problem here, the fact that the nation's rage is so important to us. If we mistakenly think that the problem of the world is simply their behavior, we will try to correct their behavior. We will teach against it. We will legislate against it. We'll try to counsel it out of them or medicate them. We will argue with them about the negative impacts of their, their sins and their behaviors rather than actually giving them the true source of their sin, their rebellion, and giving them the true cure, which is the gospel. We'll try to convince them it's wrong because of the side effects or the results rather than the real issue, the rebellion, this active rebellion. And it's active rebellion. This is the reason why only the word of God works in evangelism, in spreading the gospel. Only the word of God convicts that the root sin is rebellion and that the just reward for that rebellion is death. And that the only way out is an unconditional surrender to trust Jesus Christ to take that sin in our place, to pay the price and then to give to us eternal life. Yes, the nations rage against Yahweh and his anointed. And yes, against Jesus himself. Few people have a problem with you worshiping a God. It's when you get specific that people get upset. They get really upset when you say, I worship the particular and only God that you also must worship or lose your life. And that's when the world just loses it and they lose their patience with the gospel. The exclusivity of the gospel is really the point where people get upset. Why? Because they're in rebellion against the Lord and specifically against his anointed. You see that in verse two. They take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. His anointed in the near term was David. In the long term is Jesus Christ. And we are the body of Christ. And we are those who ultimately will reign with Christ. We are the co-heirs of God, according to the gospel in the book of Romans. It is indeed the church, the true church, that is fought against as the visible aspect, the tangible aspect of Jesus Christ still here on earth. We are his body, and it is even against the church itself that the world rages. Now look at the response to this, and this is important, verse 4 here. The Lord laughs. You can put Psalm 1 and 2 together, and you can see that these who plot against the Lord, they're really parallel to the scoffers of Psalm chapter 1. The, the scoffers, and but the, it, the, the interesting irony is that it's the Lord who's laughing here. And this might be, and I'm not sure, I didn't do an exhaustive search, 
But this might be the only place in Scripture that the Lord is found laughing. It's not recorded in the Gospels of our Lord Jesus ever having laughed. We kind of assume he did because he had to put up with human beings like me and you. But this is a laugh of scorn. It says derision because this is a response, the response of a human if he's as if, how can we make sense of this? What if an ant suddenly could communicate with you? And he communicated and expressed to you that he indeed was going to conquer you, subdue you, and that you would become his great servant. And that indeed he was going to uh, to battle you and to be victorious over you. And what? how would you respond to that? Well, first of all, you'd be freaked out because an ant's talking to you. But then after you got over that idea, you'd be looking at that ant like, that's ridiculous. You're an ant. I could step on you. I can walk away from you. You'll never catch up to me. You know, you're you're powerless against me. And this is the Lord laughing at all of the nations. Indeed, the entire world is a plot against him. It's just like, what are you going to do? I'm the one who spoke everything into existence. And think about this. Because of what we learn in the Bible, the Lord doesn't have to do anything in his wrath. All he has to do is stop sustaining his creation. It says, in him all things hold together by the power of his word. He would simply have to stop sustaining creation in order for it to be utterly and totally, molecule by molecule, banished, destroyed, done for. And so this is why he laughs. Because this is truly a vain thing. The question was, why do they plot in vain? Why do they plot something meaningless or ineffective or hopeless? And this is why the Lord laughs. He can laugh because he knows the reality of their position, that they are powerless against him. He doesn't even need to fight this. I want to point out a a quote here from Thomas Adams who was a Puritan who lived in the late 16th, early 17th century. And here's what he says about this passage uh, and about the scoffers particularly. They scoff at us. God laughs at them. Laugh. This seems a hard word at the first view. Uh, Are the injuries of his saints, the cruelties of their enemies, the derision, the persecution of all that are round about us, no more but matter of laughter? Severe Cato thought that laughter did not become the gravity of Roman consuls, that it is a diminution of states, as another told princes, and it is attributed to the majesty of heaven? According to our capacities, the prophet describes God as ourselves would be in a merry disposition, deriding vain attempts. He laughs, but it is in scorn. He scorns, but it is with vengeance. Pharaoh imagined that by drowning the Israelite males, he found a way to root their name from the earth. But when at that same time, his own daughter in his own court gave princely education to Moses, their deliverer, did not God laugh? Short is the joy of the wicked. Is Dagon put up to his place again? God's smile shall take off his head and his hands and leave him neither wit to guide nor power to subsist. We may not judge of God's works until the fifth act, the case, deplorable and desperate in outward appearance, may with one smile from heaven find a blessed 
issue. He permitted his temple to be sacked and rifled, the holy vessels to be profaned and caroused in. But did not God smile, make Belshazzar to tremble at the handwriting on the wall? Oh, what are his frowns if his smiles be so terrible? See, what Thomas Adams there saw in the Bible was many, many times when people thought they'd gotten away with something, when they thought they were effective in their rebellion against God, and he was already working his plan round about them. And he ultimately was victorious and ultimately held all the cards. And so he writes this great thing, and I want to repeat the last line of it that we had. Oh, what are his frowns if his smiles be so terrible. The Lord laughs at this because he has a plan that will not fail. He has seen the end from the beginning. He has a conquering son. And this is the son who conquers. So back to our outline here, the nation's rage, the Lord laughs, the son conquers. And this is found uh, beginning in verses seven through nine here. These verses are the son speaking and quoting the father as we saw earlier. And he said, you are my son today, I've begotten you. And look at verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. His heritage, his own possession. His own possession though, not to have and to hold and to cherish and love, but his own possession to break with a rod of iron and dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, the Lord was giving the nations over to the Son for the purpose of judgment. And this is something that's powerfully important for us to understand, that indeed, yes, the Lamb returns with wrath. This is the cry of the rebellious that we hear in the last hour, this cry of, of raging against him. Look in Revelation chapter 6, starting in verse 15 here. We find something very interesting. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? This is indeed a profound revelation of their great rebellion and the great fear of the Lord, the great wrath of the Lord. The book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ and it shows us the great wrath being poured out upon the earth. Much of it happening now and increasing as time goes by until such time that the Lord returns. And as this wrath is being poured out, the unbeliever's response is not, gee, we're sorry, gee, you know, let us change our ways, give us another chance or anything. It's just, hide us, hide us from him. And the most amazing thing about all of this that I want to amplify here for you is simply this, hide us from what? The wrath of the lamb. This is such an absurd statement that it, it, it's necessary for us to think about this for a moment. If there were ever a creature 
to inspire fear in human beings. If there ever a creature that were to symbolize the great wrath of God as the sovereign creator who could destroy the universe in a single stroke, if there were ever a creature to bring about the great fear of mankind to inspire repentance, to drive them to their knees, it's not a lamb. It's the wrath of the Lamb that they want hidden from. The, you know, yeah, it's the one who's seated on the throne. That's God the Father. That's pretty scary, you know, because the description of him is pretty awesome. But the wrath of the Lamb? And this is an absurdity akin to the, the, uh, the movie that had a, a rabbit as the terrifying and, and horrifying creature that was guarding uh, a great secret. And this uh, terrifying little regular-sized white fluffy bunny rabbit was a terror to these soldiers that sought what was behind it. And of course, this was a comedy that we were talking of here. And the comedy is this, how can such a thing be so ferocious? And indeed, this is what we see in God's great and wonderful comedy of truth is that we see the wrath of the Lamb taking place. Yeah, Jesus came the first time and, and he didn't do anything against anybody, didn't even raise his voice about things, didn't, didn't throw a fuss. He had one little fit in the temple, but that was almost something that had been planned, that had been proper for him to do. Nevertheless, he, he was a Lamb when he came and he offered himself a sacrifice he did not defend himself when he could and when he was before the authorities he made no mention or no defense he was a lamb and he returns but he returns with great wrath he is this one that's at the right hand of God. He is the one that dramatically conquers all the nations. Think back to the imagery that we have of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Things like Daniel chapter 2, where he is the rock, not cut by human hands, that conquers indeed all of the nations of the earth. And the beasts of Daniel chapter 7 paraded before us as empires, one after another after another, a ferocious, terrible, horrible beast with iron teeth, the last ones described, and yet it is the sun who conquers them. That all four of these beasts come by and they all represent an empire as it's interpreted to us in the book of Daniel here. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome in order are revealed as these empires here. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Well, who took away their dominion? Here it goes. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. This is language specific to gods here in that context in those days. There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him, unmistakably Jesus Christ, as he is spoken of in the book of Revelation. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All the raging of the nations is a vain thing because the Lord Jesus Christ is going to receive a dominion that will not fail that will not end. These attempts are in vain, and this is why the Lord laughs, because the Son will ultimately conquer. The Son will ultimately judge. He will squash the rebellion swiftly and easily. 
And the book of Revelation shows us that the rebellion is eventually ended and the rebels are swallowed up in wrath and eternally defeated. But there's a problem with that. See, the rebellion really consists of all of us. The Bible makes it very clear that all have sinned, that no one does good, not even one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of that sin is death. So the question we have to address to ourselves, what shall we do? How do we escape this certain judgment upon the earth and this ultimate conquering of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, there's hope in the final stanza of Psalm 2. Psalm 2, verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. So it turns right to application. Given all this, that this is a, a useless rebellion, that this is a vain thing, that the Lord only laughs at it, and that indeed the Lord has a plan to put everything in the universe under the feet of, that is, under the administration of the Son. The advice is this. Be wise, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Now this is interesting. The translators here of the ESV just say kiss the Son. And they don't tell us what kind of kiss. The translators of the Revised Standard Version say kiss the feet. And what they were trying to do and what those translators were endeavoring to do, because it literally just says here, kiss the sun, what they were trying to show in the RSV is the real context of this. To kiss the feet, indicating this is a kiss of obeisance or worship. There's a lot of kissing in the Bible. and Sometimes I, I feel like that that kid on the, on the movie, The Princess Bride, where he asks his grandpa who's going to read him a book called The Princess Bride. And he's like, I don't think I want to hear that. You know, is there kissing in it? And, you know, you look at the Bible, it's like, is there kissing in it? Yeah, there's a lot of it. Uh, but most of it, the vast majority of it, is this kissing of greeting, which was very common in those days. It's still very common in many places of the world to this day that people would greet one another with a kiss. And this, however is not this kissing of familiarity, this kissing, because look at the context in which we are, are here. See, there, was other, there were other kinds of kissing. There were the kiss, kissing of passion that was uh, limited to a, a husband and wife by the Lord. There was this, uh, also this kissing of obeisance, that when one king would conquer another king, when he did not want to destroy that king, he didn't want to kill that king, he would make a public ceremony of that king basically surrendering. And very often part of that ceremony in the ancient world was that the conquered king would kiss the feet of the conqueror. And so this was something that was profound in its, in its display. This was something that really made the point that this one's going to kiss my feet, bowing or kissing the feet of a master or of a king is a, uh, an expression of obedience, an expression of what they call obeisance, that is subjection, to recognize you are higher than me, I will therefore obey you. Bowing 
as it's mentioned sometimes in the Bible, often would include when it's, people are bowing at the feet, as it's described in the battle in the Bible, might include this kissing of the feet. There's an account of Jesus' feet being kissed, and I think it is in exactly this type of manner. If we look at this in Luke chapter uh, forty, or Luke chapter seven, starting verse forty-one. Uh, Jesus was having dinner at a uh, um, at Simon the Pharisee's house, and he tells this parable of two people who were forgiven a debt, one had a small debt, one very great. And you know, Jesus asked the question, you know, uh, which one's going to be uh, more grateful? Which one will love him more for forgiving the debt? And Simon says, "Well, the one who canceled the larger debt." Jesus says, "You're right. You've judged rightly." But look what he says in verse 44. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And this woman was worshiping at his feet, and they all thought it was quite disgraceful. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. This is the kind of faith, the kind of proper response that, that comes out of somebody that comes from somebody who genuinely trusts the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And that's why he can say, your sins are forgiven. We will meet this woman one day. because Not because she kissed his feet, but because she had such a genuine understanding of Jesus and such a true faith that it came out expressed in this way. But Simon, he said, you gave me no kiss, but she has not ceased to kiss my feet. The Spirit's invitation in these last verses of Psalm chapter 2 is simply this. Don't be destroyed. The Lord takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked, the Bible says. Serve the Lord with fear. Kiss the Son. Now some will say, well, that's so Old Testament. How does it speak to the world today? Well, this psalm is important and speaks to the world today. Because what the world today needs is this king. They need this good king. They need a conquering king. We have a world today that's very concerned about justice. It's very concerned about the mistreatment of fellow human beings. It's very concerned that we would be socially conscious and be caring for those in need and be sensitive to the needs of others and be kind to one another. And this is the king that is bringing this kingdom, a kingdom in which there is perfect love, a kingdom in which he is going to solve all these problems. There are many scoffers in the world today, and many of those scoffers will come against the gospel, and they'll say, if your God is so great as you say he is, and you gather together on Sundays, and you sing songs to him about how wonderful he is, and you say that you love him, how can he be so great in all this woe, and all this destruction, and all this terror, and all this violence, and all this poverty, and all this sickness be in the world? In other words, how can a good God allow these bad things to happen? 
Christian, your answer is so obvious and so simple. And we see it here from Psalm chapter 2. When the, when the scoffer asks, how can your God let these bad things happen? We have to say very simply, he's not letting them happen. He is putting an end to them. He is actively putting an end to them now, person by person, piece by piece, bringing them into the gospel of Jesus Christ, bringing them into the kingdom of God by saving their souls and changing their hearts and setting them on a new path where one day he will return and all of those found to be in him will be perfected. All such violence will be banished. All poverty will be gone. Every tear wiped away. This is the king we serve, and he is the ultimate activist because he is putting away sin completely. I dare you to find a problem in the world that's not the result of sin. Yes, even sickness, even our genetic problems, even our fall, even death itself, all dragged into the world by sin, which the Lord Jesus Christ is rolling back. That's why he was raised from the dead to show this to be truth, that he is reversing the curse that came upon mankind when Adam and Eve sinned. This is the king that the world needs. This is the one who feels hopeless that brings hope. There's a savior doing something about it all, redeeming souls and returning one day to rule. And he does away with all the bad things in the world. And it's not a matter of if he will do it. It's only a matter of when. Therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, I want to present to you a couple of challenges today. Like this wasn't challenging enough for us. I'm going to get through all these things here and ask a couple of questions. First question is this. Are we preaching the gospel that is consistent with God's revelation? When we go out and we tell people why it is that they ought to follow Jesus, why it is they ought to, to join us here in the church and other things like that, are we talking about the rebellion? Are we talking about the wrath of God against sin? And are we talking about redemption? Or are we skipping over the bad parts because we don't like how they make us feel? Something really to think about. The second question we have for the church today is this. How does preaching the gospel, as revealed in Scripture, address all the needs of today's society? Well, we need to be able, very simply, to answer that. We need to see how it is that the Lord Jesus Christ meets all the needs of today's society. Because what we need is a ruling king. We were made for this. This is how God made us to be in fellowship with him. And so he's reestablishing this fellowship through the Lord Jesus Christ. He must do it through our forgiveness of sins. For we cannot stand before him. We cannot have fellowship with him and still be in our sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ came to take our place for the wrath. So that the fine for our sin is paid. And as he took our place then, he can grant us his life. 
It's eternal life. We indeed need a king, and we need a sovereign king that can actually change hearts, that can sustain his people from death to life, that can deliver his people from temptation and despair, from the bonds of sin and addiction. That is the king that we have. Will we need to work through these things with great difficulty? Yes. Will the change of our heart be difficult and require effort from us? Absolutely. Will we still have to feed and clothe people? Of course we will. But it all begins here with this, with each and every sinner submitting to the Son, to the eternal King, the one who has life in his hands, who will rule with a rod of iron. That's what we need. The raging is not a threat to God. It is a symptom of the problem of mankind, and this very raging testifies against them. Let's end with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for these things, and we thank you for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that indeed you have taken great effort and great pains to offer salvation to the world. I pray, Lord, that many will seek it and many will find it. I pray that you will draw people to yourself, that you will be known and glorified through your great gospel of truth. And Lord, as you come, we say, come quickly. We say, end all this. We say and we pray, Lord, will you please come and put an end to the tears and to the pain and to the cries of despair of humanity. Lord, separate the sheep from the goats, as it were and come quickly to reign upon the earth, to fulfill all that you had intended for mankind, to be to us our God, and may we be your people. We thank you and praise you for this great work that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us today, and I want to encourage you to contact us you can contact me at whitethronebaptist at gmail.com and I will receive those emails personally and respond to them personally. And I encourage you to do so. And you can find out more about our church at whitethron.org. If you're not so close as to be able to join us, you can contact us and we can help you find another church, a church near you, a church that preaches the Bible uh, as it truly is the word of God. So I hope you've been encouraged and I hope that you have a blessed day pondering these things.